Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to. A former colony won the right to determine its own destiny. You've heard me talk about the Agora Podcast Network, of which Mid-Atlantic is a proud member at the start of each show for, I don't know, maybe about a year now. It's a network of podcasts that cumulatively have over 750,000 verifiable downloads each month, of which over 400,000 are in the US alone. If you're an advertiser, it's the ideal platform to get your message out there to hundreds of thousands of engaged listeners each month, whether that is in the US, the UK, Canada, or even Australia. If you have a product or a service that you would like to promote on either Mid-Atlantic or the wider Agora network, please send me an email at royfield at gmail.com. That's R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D at gmail.com to hear how we can help. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown. Today I'm joined by Peter Joseph, an American independent filmmaker and political activist. He's best known for the Zeitgeist film series which he wrote, directed, narrated, scored and produced, which spawned the Zeitgeist movement. Welcome to Mid-Atlantic, Peter. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Peter, first off, if you had to give us a Trumpian tweet that summed up your new book, The New Human Rights Movement, what would that be? <laughs> a Trumpian tweet? That's a strange way to qualify it. Uh, I suppose the the book would be summarized as a sociological take on what's required to change the world. That sounds a bit of an intellectual mouthful for your president there, but we'll take that as your 140 characters without actually counting them. (laughs) We stand today at the threshold of a great event both in the life of the United Nations and in the life of mankind. This universal declaration of human rights may well become the international Magna Carta of all men everywhere. We hope its proclamation by the General Assembly will be an event comparable to the proclamation of the Declaration of the Rights of Man by the French people in 1789 the adoption of the Bill of Rights by the people of the United States, and the adoption of comparable declarations at different times in other countries. In 1948, there was the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was adopted by the UN in its General Assembly. Who and what will adopt and champion your human rights movement? Well, let's start with uh, your comment on the UN. Most people, when they think of human rights, they're referring to very specific problems such as prisoners held as you know prisoners of war somewhere or some atrocity of some leader that's held in uh, some kind of dictatorial tortured captivity you tend to find the human rights idea is very specific on one side and then some basic larger order structural kind of things that they'll talk about say 
you know, everyone has the right to water. Okay, so that's kind of where I pick up the torch here. Because if you say something like everyone has a right to clean water on the planet and that should be a given, then the question is what it goes into making sure that condition can become available. What goes into changing our system, changing society to ensure that water actually is available? Because water is really symbolic of public health, right? So we can expand the conversation more so, and the question really becomes, what does it mean to maintain good public health in society, and do people as human beings in society, are they allowed to have the right to have good public health? And that's really the core of the argument, and the question I think should be absolutely yes. But in order to achieve high-quality public health for, the, for every human being on this planet, there are massive structural changes that need to happen specifically to our economy in order to facilitate that. And that's how the book kicks off, and I go through a long analysis of such things. Uh, but I, wanna, you know, I don't want to deviate too far, because I'm sure you have lots of questions, but I will say that there's a myopic view when it comes to this term human rights, which is why I, I titled the book The New Human Rights Movement, because ten, I tend to find people don't think about these things in the broadest context, specifically the structural relationship of our social system and the systemic consequences that, that uh, spiral around and then create the reality that we experience, which unfortunately most are confused by. I'm giving a new definition to the idea because it was, and ultimately if we don't galvanize the existing activist community, and this is my biggest point, if we don't get the, say, social activists and the so-called political activists and the ecological activists, you know, pretty much every person on the spectrum of looking for environmental and social justice as far as I'm concerned, as the book argues, you have to focus on the economic roots of our society if you expect to really bring out any of the positive factors that increase, and I should say decrease, the oppressive and deprivation-filled reality that much of the world suffers with today, in complete violation, as far as I'm concerned, of their core human rights in the 21st century. I think it's interesting that you talked about activism, and obviously that is at the very core of your book, um, but we live in, in a world increasingly of echo chambers and whether people on the left or the right increasingly we're not listening to activists that hold political views that aren't ours. Surely your message should be to incentivize and to get the people who are in the middle to be the activists. Yes, I, at first I agree with you. Uh, we have a very polarized kind of media reality and people can, people can pretty much block off information now through the internet that they don't want to see then they can amplify the information that they do want to see. So that's, a, that's an unfortunate kind of side effect of the you know, supposed uh, open nature of the Internet because it's so overwhelming, and if, you get bi if people become uh, biased politically or socially, they unfortunately tend to want to reinforce their bias as opposed to seeking contrary views. So I definitely agree with that. As far as the galvanization, you know, and ideally, whether you're in the left or the right or the center, I would hope that the common values that we all share would eventually come through. I, I think it does naturally gravitate towards more the center, the arguments I put forward, or you know, actually kind of more to the left just because they do have echoes or superficial appearances of what many in, say, Europe would consider socialism and so on, something quite new to my world in the United States, which has been the beacon of any kind of anti-social anything. That's, uh, that's sort of root I mean, Britain has its, has its terrible colonial history, as, the, as does the U.S., but the U.S. was able, in the mid-20th century, to really create this free market neoliberal mythology to the extent that it's just been a massive battle to get any kind of basic protections in the society against you know, the war system, because that's what capitalism effectively is. It's a, it's a war system. So, I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm hoping that it's not one of those things that people just gravitate towards in a group ideological sense, and they see the merit of this kind of thing across the board. It, it gets to the core of human values, the core of human support. If, if you believe that we have enough efficiency in our modern economic system, which we do, to take care of all of humanity, why should we be caught up in this argument that some deserve to have more than others why can't we find a way to get the to first of all bring the public health science to the forefront and get away from morality and opinion? That's something I really need to emphasize here, and that's why the book goes on the the train of thought that it does because it's really not about 
just what's right anymore in the sense of, you know, people should have this or shouldn't have this. It's a matter of what is going to work. And in the modern day, you have things like technological unemployment, where the cost efficiency basis of businesses are seeing that technology is cheaper than humans. And that is a direct contradiction of this system that wasn't foreshadowable, you know, a century ago, at least not really. And you have to compensate for that. And if we don't compensate for that, it's going to lead to social instability, no doubt, if it hasn't already. I mean, a lot of people, we become so accustomed to the destabilization of the world today. You know, we have a bill, basically about a billion people not getting the nutrition met. We have 65 million refugees that have no home. We have an enormous amount of poverty, even in, in, the, uh, in the Western countries that are supposedly high wealth. Uh, enormous amount of relative poverty in the United States, less than 62% have $1,000 in savings. And of course, I know in the UK, you know, you guys have uh, crazy disparities at the same time. You know, there's 25 empty homes in the UK for every homeless person. That's wacky. Um, and that's the kind of stuff that people need to start thinking about more deeply and realize that the ideological fervor needs to be put aside and just focus on what, what public health science actually details. And I can talk more about that in specifics if you like, with All respect right. to how... Anyway, I'll stop there. <laughs> All right. What are those socioeconomic preconditions for a sustainable and socially just world? I think you've kind of touched on it, and it's kind of interesting that you've used the words like morality uh, in some mm. of the answers that you've given before. But what exactly are those preconditions, and, and who determines them? Well, there's two sides to it. You could look at the preconditions of the world we have now. You can look at the history of the economic system that we share on this world and that has its complete cultural hegemony now with the fall of the Soviet Union. So neoliberal capitalism is the dominant force in any country on the planet that slightly deviates, feels the force of the empire. That precondition was set in motion by the Neolithic Revolution. So you go back 12,000 years or so, and you have what you could call a geographical determinism. So it's not an issue of singular people deciding what the structure of society should be. It's an issue that we have certain things that happened in the agrarian revolution that set the necessity as a kind of an inferential rationalization that just became natural to civilization. So in other words, uh, you have settled agrarian societies versus hunter-gatherer societies. I don't know if you're aware of you know, early hunter-gatherer societies before the mm -hmm. Neolithic Revolution, they were, they were nomadic. They didn't believe in any kind of property issues like we do today. They didn't use money. They didn't use markets. Uh, it was a completely different type of order. And I'm not glorifying that, by the way. I'm just showing the difference between the two. So once the agrarian revolution happened, you had settled agrarian societies. You had a basis for property. People started to develop uh, differential skills. So you had the, the kind of means of production established along with specialization, labor specialization, and then jobs, and then the association between demand and jobs naturally went together, and then corruption, so regulation and government, and of course protection through law and military, and eventually, you know, eventually the institution of war. All of that was built in to the Neolithic Revolution, all of those things, as they still uh, persist today. So that precondition, what I call in the book the root socioeconomic orientation, that is the destructive force that we're stuck in and we have to get past. I don't think we've had the opportunity really, at least not, not in large pockets of society. There have been you know, different aboriginal cultures and so on that have lived differently, uh, and usually they're wiped out, you know, such as the Native American cultures in the United States, very uh, peaceful communities that were pretty much wiped out, as Christopher Columbus said, because they were so peaceful, because they didn't have malicious intent as a group. And that's exactly, of course, what happened. But I don't want to deviate from that. So yeah, the, pre the precondition of, of scarcity, which leads to trade strategizing dominance, which leads to oppression and so on, xenophobia, racism, these all have economic roots that go back you know, a long period. So the question then becomes, what could the new precondition be? What supports the best of human health, the best of making sure people actually get along with each other as opposed to being antagonistic and at war? You know, for example, we have long existed in the hierarchy, you know, since the Neolithic Revolution, once again, hierarchy and poverty were pretty much invented. They didn't exist before. And what we find today in public health how, research is that inequality... Peter, how, Peter how, how do we know? That in the near, in that because anthrop anthropological mm -hmm. studies and indigenous cultures that existed in the 19th century that can be rooted back because they were not touched. They never transcended into the agrarian society, believe it or not. There are still hunter-gatherers, very, very few in the world today. 
and they serve as echoes. Peter Faber wrote a big book on this. Marshall Salins wrote a book called Stone Age Economics. A bunch of anthropologists that have clarified this quite well. I mean, we can argue that it's hard to know, but we do know from existing at least 120 uh, first uh, encountered folks in the 19th century uh, that they lived very differently and it did not have hierarchy. And did not, you know, the early civilizations did not have extreme war either. War is, is a modern phenomenon. Modern meaning, of, of course, since the agrarian revolution. But going back to this issue of hierarchy and classism, or excuse me, just class in general, um, we know that it's bad for public health. Class relationships and the sense of economic hierarchy is very destructive. There's a book written by uh, Richard Wilkinson called The Spirit Level. It's sourced in my book. And he details what happens in societies that have high class imbalance. And these are actually first world societies. These are societies you know, like, like the U.S. and the U.K. And, and Sweden and Denmark and Japan and so on. They look at the rates of, say, life expectancy and math literacy and infant mortality and homicides and imprisonment and the lack of trust or mental illness or alcohol addiction or even social mobility itself. And they find that the more stratified a given society is, a given country, the worse off all of those issues are. That means something deep down in our evolutionary psychology and in our biology that says that we don't like actually to be hierarchically differentiated like this, at least economically, that's for sure. You know, we have a deeply social nature. There's something called social identity theory that I touch upon in the book as well. And it's a beautiful concept in and of itself because we do see each other as mirrors and reflections of ourselves and we identify with each other and we, we eventually end up in kind of a group inclusive sense. And that's a positive thing. That's an evolutionarily positive thing. But when you have high class inequality, such as, you know, today we have five people that have more money than the bottom 50%, that is extremely unhealthy. And that is what fuels things in this kind of blowback context, whether you have it on the international level with the rise of terrorism, or you have the random shootings and, and mass murders, or you have just general outrage and crime, or on a psychological level, extremely polarized views, such as the rise of the Donald Trump administration. Okay, let, 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 let me jump in, let me jump in. Sure, sure. All right, so if we have five individuals that have as much wealth as 50% of the planet, which is quantifiably true, uh, and we're talking about those who hold power, political power, economic leaders of power, why should they try and change the structure as it currently stands? What benefit is there for them? Because they can hold this power. Can you talk about a greater good? They can hold this power. And fundamentally, they're pretty secure in it. So what incentive is there for, not necessarily for those five individuals, but let's say the 1%, the 3%, actually to give up a portion of their economic wealth for the greater good? We may have been through some of the most punishing financial times in a generation, but it hasn't stopped the richest of the rich from making even more money. A new report says the world's wealthiest 1% now own more than half the planet's riches. That's a rise of almost 10 percentage points from last year, indicating that global inequality is widening at, a, widening at an alarming rate. Just to illustrate the disparity between the rich and the poor, according to Oxfam, at the beginning of this year, 85 people of the richest people in the world had as much money as 3.5 billion people in the poorest countries in the world. The rich are continuing to buy their, their yachts and in some cases islands, but the rest of us have to continue struggling to pay the bills. But in poor countries, rising inequality could mean the difference between children being able to get to school and sick people being able to get life-saving medicines as well as treatment. Now, and the UK has been singled out in this report as the only country in the G7 to have rising inequality in the 21st century. But it's not just the UK that needs to watch out, but the United States as well because their overall wealth has been rising faster than the pace of incomes. And the authors of this report warned that this could result in a recession. As I also detail in the second chapter of the book, there's a psychology that's developed with the upper class. The more they crawl up that ladder in their benefit, the rare few that do make it into these upper percentages, their psychology becomes hindered on average. These studies are quite profound, in fact. And they find that these folks are less apathetic, excuse me, less empathetic, more apathetic. They can't recognize facial features that express emotion. 
They are far more likely to engage in corruption, uh, to have general indifference. The top 50 charity donations in the United States, philanthropic donations, not one of them went to a welfare-based charity. They all went to things like museums and higher education and, and the orchestras. So that is a problem. And it's the operant conditioning that they've been so rewarded. Why would they want to change? And there lies why I say it's an activist issue. No, they're not going to change. And the only way that the thing is going to happen is by a grassroots kind of coercion, basically pointing out the fact that the destabilization that's on the horizon is going to be magnificent if such changes aren't made. Now, I will say this. There is a realization happening, which is why you have people like Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk talking about universal basic income now. Because in their intuition, they know that if we're automating labor, people are not going to get money to spend back into the system, which will in, you know, invariably create more destabilization because you're going to create more economic inequality, even more than we have now. In fact, automation is one of the biggest drivers of economic inequality because we don't have any kind of distribution system, redistribution system, as they would say, uh, as tables have been slanted towards one side. And so Zuckerberg and Musk, these guys are very much into this because it's going to save them. <laughs> There will be fewer and fewer jobs that a robot cannot do better. What to do about mass unemployment? This is going to be a massive social challenge. Um, and I think ultimately we will have to have some kind of universal basic income. I don't think we're going to have a choice. Universal basic Un income. Universal basic income. I think it's going to be necessary. So it means that unemployed people will be paid across the globe. Yeah. Because there is no job, machine, robot is taking over. Um, that, that's simply the, the uh, and I want to be clear that these, th these are not uh, things that I think that I wish would happen. These are think, simply things that I think probably will happen. Um, and since, and if, they, if, if, if my assessment is correct and they probably will happen, then we need to say what are we going to do about it? And I think some kind of a universal basic income is going to be necessary. Now, the output, the output of goods and services will be extremely high. Um, so with automation, there will come abundance. There will be, uh, almost everything will get very cheap. The harder challenge, much harder challenge, is how do people then have meaning? Like a lot of people, they derive their meaning from their employment. If, if you're not needed, if there's not a need for your labor, what's the meaning? Do you, do you have meaning? Do you feel useless? These are much, that's a much harder problem to deal with. Now, I'm for universal basic income because it, it will help poverty. People should have a nest, uh, a safe zone. Uh, it shouldn't be looked at as welfare. It should be looked at as just a natural human right to exist in a world of high efficiency, efficiency that's being monetized and, and again, moved to the upper 0.1%, really. But they have no other incentive beyond that, which is why at the end of the book I express that this isn't going to be a change that happens from our government. Our governments, both in the U.K. and the U.S., and generally across the world, are driven and lobbied by business and business incentives. Okay. You've looked at this and you detail the rise of our industrial world and our post-industrial world. But if I look back to the 1820s, what we experienced in Britain was the first kind of technological change within the Industrial Revolution. And you had the rise right. of the Luddites who were smashing up those looms because they said that um, workers were going to be put out of, of jobs. And right. we had 20 years or so of relative instability until the new wave of technology came in and people went back to work. Aren't we just going through another one of those periods now? Can't just... Go. I wish we were. I honestly wish we were. What, it's what, a very complicated do, problem. Why do we I'll know you, that we're not? Well, here's the, okay, so the technological... Are you familiar with uh, people who have studied the exponential increase in the rates of information technology and general technological development? Uh, two of the figures that come to mind, or actually three of them, is for one, R. Buckminster Fuller. Mm -hmm. He's the one that invented the geodesic dome, and he writes prolifically about the most important economic attribute of the modern period, and that's the fact that we have an exponentially increasing efficiency across the whole industrial complex. Put that in context with, say, Jeremy Rifkin. Jeremy Rifkin wrote a book called Zero Marginal Cost. It has to do with the fact that now today, within the past 100 years, we have the ability to exponentially increase the amount of wealth we can extract from any given singular system. 
So zero marginal cost means that the more you're able to make create efficient industry, the less the value, the less cost or marginal cost uh, each good that is produced. And then you have uh, Ray Kurzweil. And Ray Kurzweil talks about the exponential increase of information technology. And that's particularly interesting because information technology in the digital age is overflowing into every single other industry. Because as we know, computers are tied to everything. And the decision-making associated with computers, the increase in computation for whatever given sector, is also rapidly increasing. In the movies, AIs are always ultimately dumber than humans, whether it's the benign Pinocchio, Mr. Data, or the clinical killer, Hal. Their limits and fail-safes are imposed by us. This failure of imagination doesn't address our real future, should we have one, as articulated by the visionary Ray Kurzweil, who employs a simple mathematical equation to predict that by 2045, Digital technology will reach a crescendo of change utterly incomprehensible to ordinary humans. It was computer engineer Gordon Moore who, in 1965, observed that computational capability doubles every two years, riding an exponential curve like a runaway train on a skyward track. And now, because of Moore's law, we continue to race past technological way stations at a gravity-defying pace. The grossly expensive machine that once filled a room that now fits in our hand will soon swim in our bloodstream. So to answer your question, it's a very different world than the, than the 19th century first industrial revolution. Now it's out of control how rapid our ability to automate and use artificial intelligence actually is. And it actually becomes, perfectly honest with you, uh, an irresponsibility not to automate at this stage, to actually literally focus away from labor for income for humans and focus directly on automation in every single sector where we can see it applied. So the Luddite fantasy is just that it's not reality anymore. And we see this in the pure statistics put out by very major institutions. It's also a deep intuition when you look at the you know, the general spectrum of things that we see that are possible in automation. Is there an, are we going to have enough time to keep up and invent new human jobs? It's possible that other human jobs, probably quite pointless, by the way, at a certain stage, even if we could invent new labor for humans, what effect does it really have? You know, there's already people working in service industries that have no real uh, contribution to society, like the financial services sector, probably one of the most profitable so you look at these nations that started off with you know, market capitalism in the sense of, I should say, merchant capitalism, where you know, you're buying and selling physical goods. And then in these same economically mature nations eventually evolve into financial capitalism. That's because the actual merchant attribute has been taken over by efficiency and automation and mechanization, and it's reduced in its ability to produce profit as compared to the financial sector. And the financial sector, which does nothing, produces nothing, has no real value. You could, you could pull a plug and eliminate Wall Street and the entire trading mechanism across the world. It would make not one difference to our ability to actually produce real life-supporting goods on this planet. No. Right now, based on the incentive of cost efficiency, there's nothing to say that we're going to have new jobs magically that fill the void being created uh, by technology. If something does come out of left field, then you know, I'll be surprised when it happens. But I don't see anything. I don't see the new sector. And just to confirm the point, after the Industrial Revolution, you had everyone move to the service sector. And the service sector has been the final bastion because, you know, everyone thought, well, we can't really automate tellers in the sense of communication. Uh, but, we, but that's exactly what we've done. And in fact, I've given this example. Uh, I just saw a report not too long ago, McDonald's, of, not that it matters what the restaurant is, but they started out putting automated kiosks, replacing their human workers in the front of the house. And their stock went up. Just because the un un unemployment associated with McDonald's also went up, and that's a that's the kind of trajectory we're looking at. We're looking at corporate power backing the laying off of people by applying automation. I mean, if you have a different perspective, I'd love to hear it. I don't know if I have a different perspective, um, but there's, there's a couple of things. Okay. No, I'm no massive advocate for Wall Street, but surely the one benefit of Wall Street is to aid technological innovation whether that is right or wrong good or bad that without capital transfers uh, large capital transfers of money technological change whether it's to do with pharmaceuticals and that ultimately means our health or whether it's to do with technology would have been somewhat slower in the late uh, 
20th century and the early 21st century? I don't know if that's really true because you could have it done a completely different way without the need for this this fluid representative share type of neuroses and game. You can have plenty of investment in a traditional entrepreneurial sense that doesn't require the shenanigans of investment banks and the the various you know financial sector third parties. You could go back to the idea long before Wall Street you know found its massive clout as a money machine for the upper one percent. Keep in mind. 1% of the population owns 83% of all stocks. So that it's not a, it's a classist institution that only reinforces the wealthy at this stage. And I, I, I see your point. I, historically, you're absolutely right. But that isn't to say that we ever, ever needed it to actually engage finance to improve you know, health research or to create new technologies. Um, you know, Apple started out with all of its, all of its prelim- preliminary investors made a great deal of, of accomplishment long before it had its IPO. And even the IPO is, is just a small little staple when you think about it in terms of financing. And it's after the fact. It's the abuse of the system. It's the $700 billion in market share that Apple claims to have, which has absolutely no value or relationship to its capacity to produce technology or anything else. It's just, it's just nonsense on paper produced by the speculation of the masses and their they have billions of shares and float. I mean, do you, anyone out there think when they buy a share of Apple that they have any kind of influence on what the company is doing? You know, it's, to me, it's a joke. It, it's a sad joke. I, 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 I'll be honest, in the extremity, I, I advocate the abolition of Wall Street from top to bottom and the entire abolition of financial trading. If there's any singular step we could do to improve society within capitalism, uh, you know, idealistically speaking, then it would be complete removal of this institution because it doesn't help anything. It's creating more class inequality, more violence. Uh, you know, you, we, there's a thing called structural violence that was put forward by Johann Goltung. He was part of the Gandhi Institute. I mentioned this term quite a bit in my book. And when you look at what happened, say, with the repeal of Glass-Steagall in the 2008 financial uh, crisis, the Great Recession, which was engineered, not engineered, which was catalyzed by investment banks and private banks and Wall Street and the nonsense derivatives and the housing market bubble and so on, that had so many massive negative results as a side effect. You know, there were 68,000 suicides in just a short period of time after that attributed to the decline. Over 500,000 people are attributed to have died of cancer prematurely because they couldn't afford to get the treatment. In effect, you really have millions of people that were killed because of the financial services sector in Wall Street as a chain reaction during the Great Recession. And I wish people thought more about you know, those long-term effects. I'm big on that. You know, I, I think violence, the true form of violence in our society isn't person-to-person, peer-to-peer. It's structural. And the damage done in a systemic chain reaction to the general population, specifically the poor, as Gandhi said, poverty is the worst form of violence, uh, is absolutely genocidal. Um, and yet we don't talk about it. Everyone's far too concerned about someone being knifed or this new terrorist van attack and so on. And yet, you know, 65 million refugees are dying in a slow motion genocide because of all the geopolitical wars and instability that's been caused in this kind of post-colonialist context. So anyway, I could, I could, I could rant on a lot about <laughs> that to quite a degree. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In an uncertain world, there is always music which can be listened to in good company. Welcome to Friday 15, the show where we speak to friends and interesting people to the backdrop of great tunes and allocate 15 minutes to both. I mean, I was eight years old, interesting, the same age as the uh, Dragon King's daughter when she comes out of the sea. But um, well, what was happening to me when I was eight years old was that I was at the hands of a paedophile in, um, in a classroom for a year. And... Awesome. Yeah. Um, for me, I... Well, and I think the reason that I somehow managed to, to win in the end is that, for me, it's about an economy of the three things that bring a song together. Catch up with me speaking to friends and interesting people every Friday afternoon on Friday 15, which you can get, of course, from a podcatcher of your choice. Hello, I'm Lucy, and this is Walkie Talkie. I walk my dog, Basil, uh, pretty much every day in a foresty bit of London. Um, I have been doing so for about four years, and I meet people that, as a dog walker, you talk to people. Um, if your dogs get on, you tend to just you say, which way are you going, can I come with you? And you just sort of amble along, and you can end up having the most extraordinary conversations. Partly because uh, you are walking side by side and facing front, so there's no embarrassing eye contact. If things get a bit heavy, if someone starts talking about something that they find emotional or difficult, then you can always divert your attention onto the dogs and relieve the tension a little bit. We've seen, as a group of dog walkers, we've seen um, people get pregnant, have children. We've seen people whose dogs have become ill and died and the owner says, oh, I can never have another one and then in a couple of months time they appear with a puppy and everyone's delighted to see them and um, we've seen people's marriages break down, new romances start. It's a lovely way to start your morning. It never fails to give me something something nice to think about, something interesting to think about even if it's not nice and having a dog is a sort of a, a universality really. The people aren't all like me as I hope you'll realise over the course of the series. Leading up to the 1860 election, in walks a gentleman by the name of Abraham Lincoln, who is the Republican candidate. The Republicans to the South represent the ending of slavery. And Lincoln, despite the fact that his sentiment was always in the beginning to preserve the Union rather than to abolish slavery, becomes the lightning rod of anti-Southern sentiment. And he ends up winning the election in 1860 with no support from the South. The Guardian, Manchester, Tuesday, November 20th, 1860. Summary of news, foreign. The details respecting the presidential election furnished by the New York journalist, not complete, but they not only assure us of Mr. Lincoln's election, but show that the Republican Party has obtained far more than the requisite number of votes for his return. It is calculated that New York, Pennsylvania, the New England states, New Jersey, and the Northwestern states give him 171 electoral votes, or 19 more than the majority required for the election, the total number of electoral votes being 303. It is not improbable 
Two, that this majority may be further swelled by the result of the elections in the Pacific states of Oregon and California. We have no account of the manner in which the Southerners have received the intelligence of Mr. Lincoln's election. The next advices will no doubt be filled with fierce Southern declamations and protest, but it's not very likely that any Southern states will do anything mere than talk loudly about succession. Listen to the first show exclusively on Mixcloud today and subscribe to us on iTunes from Washington to Obama, 10 American Presidents, the new podcast from Royfield Brown. Peter, I want you to step me through how we're going to move from the world that we have now through to, I'm going to call your world utopian, not to deride it, but just to say that this is a different socio-economic model. One of the things which really struck me about your book, you had this line, you know, poverty today is a system consequence native to our current economic mode. Its existence is artificial and contrived. It's not natural, which is very similar to what Nelson Mandela said about slavery and apartheid. But won't we as human beings, before you go on to structurally how we get from 2017 and this neoliberal economic world that we live in to your utopian world, won't there always be relative poverty? There's always going to be some people that know a little bit more than others. There's going to be one group of people that will be slightly above the curve than another. Are you you asking me to comment on that, that suggestion? What was yeah. your exact question? Yeah. Okay, uh, well. And, I, and, I and, we... then, and then to go on structurally, what yeah. bits of our economic world do we need to change bit by bit? Uh, okay. Here's a, first, let's go back to utopia. And I, I, I know what you mean by that, but let's, let's be clinical with that definition. Utopian implies final. And there's nothing final about anything that I'm talking about. And I don't... I think what it really is, it's so radical that people want to throw that word in because they're so unaccustomed to the idea or they feel it's so improbable that human society can actually learn to work together without a competitive uh, overlay, which is what we have now. I don't think that people necessarily think that that cannot happen anymore. There are enough examples online of crowdsourcing, etc., whether it's to do with... Um, crowdsourcing of ideas or to do with money etc so I think there is just about enough of a model for us to believe that it's not necessarily totally utopian but it's whether it can actually scale up in in a meaningful way yes okay that's fair enough and I, I we could talk a lot about what, what public consensus is but you know moving on first to the point the idea of inequality Humans are not equal in any kind of specific sense. It's the decision to create economic inequality in the same way that we create legal equality. Excuse me, economic uh, equality. I I think I misspoke. So we need to look at what the activist community has been striving for, which is general democratic equality, and then ask ourselves, why haven't we applied these same principles of, you know, gender and national and, and race and and all of the other you know, social justice issues that we've been demanding, or society overall has been evolving to demand uh, in terms of equality. Why isn't that applied to economics? Instead, you have these terrible, like, equal opportunity fallacies. That's pretty much as far as we've gotten. At least in America, you can't go anywhere and there's a little form. If you fill out a job application or a, a requirement to buy something large, they talk about it being an equal opportunity, whatever. It, that's, no, that's it's the same nonsense. in the U.K. It's the same in yeah. the U.K. And that, Basically, it's, a, it's just a mental kind of idea. It's a, it's a placating notion that somehow the playing field is level. But anyway, I don't want to go on that tangent. I want to stick with your point. Are people equal? No. People are very different. They have different skill sets. They have different mental capacities. They uh, suffer different problems and victimization or benefits in childhood that lead them to have certain advantages over others. But you can't look at an economic structure in society and use the economic outcomes as measures of those capacities without creating destruction, without creating instability. Now, there's no reason to say that hierarchy can't exist in, say, you know, a skill. And so if I, was, if I met a really good computer programmer, then they would be upper, on the upper hierarchy of computer programming talent or technique or skill, then obviously I would be. 
And that's a natural element. That's really embracing our group mind, the fact that we are different and we should harness our differences. And we should have compassion for those that are limited by differences too. And in an economic system that thrives on competition and differential advantage and so on, it seems natural that some people should have more than others. But really the whole thing is a contrivance and doesn't make any sense because everyone has different preferences. So if you were to able to create a society that was oriented towards abundance, and I'm going to talk about this in more detail in a second regarding the structural issues, but if you would create a society that was detailed towards abundance as opposed to exploiting scarcity, that was towards a collaborative system as opposed to the cutthroat competitive system, you would create a whole new set of values and incentives. You would also balance the ecology where you see that there's no reason, there's, actually I should say it's offensive for somebody out there to have a 50-room mansion and two jets parked in the front lawn and 400 luxury cars. That is a completely mentally neurotic state to be. And people that do act that way uh, should, be, should be shamed. I mean, they should also be looked upon as victims of the society in the same way that the tendencies of the very poor when it comes to, say, gang behavior and so on are also outcomes of this massive inequality. So but, but, we need, but, but we, even though they are victims as well of the neuroses of society, we need to shame them first to bring about change. I say shame in part because when it, I don't say shame the poor. No, I say shame the wealthy. No, that's what the I mean. Don't, that's what I mean. Yeah, wealthy. Totally. I'm, that's not the only issue. The, again, the wealthy are victims of the society, but I have very little compassion for the billionaire class because they are given information. They, their, neuro, their neurotic state is much higher in, in my sense of judgment in terms of rational thought because they don't have the kind of educational limitations that the poor do. See, the poor tend to support their own oppression because they don't have time to think. They're in a constant survival mode. So that's why you end up with a lot of conservative folks that are poor, you know, electing people that don't care about them, such, again, as the Trump administration. And I'm, the shame isn't some active thing. I throw that out there because these people should feel horrified about this. It is a moral outrage that anyone could have a billion dollars on this planet in the wake of the vast suffering. It's not necessary in the same way that people shouldn't be sleeping on the street is not necessary. So that is a line that I'll draw in a moral sense, but I don't stop there. It's not an issue of what I think is right, once again. It's a question of what's going to work. And in a highly unequal society is a highly unstable society. And that's the reality of it. When you couple in the ecological crisis, which will be a classist uh, uh, influence, the poor of the world, whether the global south or the folks in the west and the north, they're the ones that will suffer from climate change long before the rich they're the ones that are going to be deeply affected. So the equality issue, I'm coming back to this. What does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to live in a functional society that actually supports the best public health for everyone, no one excluded, and stays in ecological balance? You can't have a consumeristic society based on vanity. You can't have status associated with what you own. And you can't have high class inequality or it's going to blow up, as we're seeing Pretty much all the violence you see in the world today on, the, on this kind of broad level, as I mentioned before, is a kind of blowback coming from shame and anger. There's one very specific theorist I'll drop a name for. His name is Dr. James Gilligan. He's from the Center for the Study of Violence at Harvard, at least the former center. And he makes it very, very clear what the most, most critical influence of violence is, and that's inequality. He describes the shame and the fear and, and the problems that come from that, especially towards the lower class. Uh, in the sense as a pathogen, as something that happens, it builds like a disease. And eventually those statistical sense, a select few on average, are the ones that will pull out and turn in you know, to violent criminals and rob banks and kill people and rape people and so on. So those connections are very much there. So I don't want to, anyway, I don't want to go on that tangent too much All because right. I know we, so, we're going to, well, well I, I, I'm, okay. I'm going to try, try and understand what I think you've said. So okay. to help society transition, we need universal health care. We need, what else? Just go through those individual steps. So I don't want to put words well, in your mouth. Yeah, I'm going, yep, I'll go through it right now. There are, there are five major transitions. Now, universal health care would be within this, this more broader context. The five major transitions, which are already happening now, only to be amplified by this new shift, the first being automation over labor for income. This is extremely important. It's the advancement of technology and mechanization applied to human labor that has allowed for the incredible efficiency that we see today with the enormous amount of wealth that be created, can be created with less and less material resources and time. 
And if you focus on that and you look at the potentials, as has been studied, you see that there's no reason for poverty. It is statistically ridiculous for anyone to have a low standard of living, even by modern standards. So that's the first one. You have to get away from labor for income, which, of course, takes the bottom out of the entire market economy, because that's what it's premised on. And we all know this a little bit, as I said, due to the, the talk of universal basic income. That's the kind of in-system elitist way of compensating for this. And I'm, I'm in favor of it, but people should recognize it for that reason as well. Mm-hmm. The second issue is we have a very property culture. And we've often said, the mythology of capitalism has often said that, oh, it's the hoarding of property and this, this, uh, this limitation that creates that creates uh, inspiration for others to try and do better and so on. Uh, we restrict information, we don't, you know, and so on. That, well, I should, but the better term here is open source. That's actually what I'm trying to touch upon. So open source is this hoarding of research and property and data. And the assumption is that people are smarter in some boardroom than the actual collective public. And that's been completely debunked. If you want to have the most efficient, innovative system of interaction economically, you open source everything. You don't allow any type of proprietary uh, hoarding of information when it comes to the commercial arena at all. And you can do that, as I detail in the fifth chapter of the book, through many different mechanisms. And what you'd see in that example, skyrocketing, exponentially skyrocketing level of innovation, because everyone will be able to design independently with, with the influence of millions, if not tens of millions of others, based on what the project is. The third thing I like to talk about is localization. Now, as I mentioned, there's this tendency to move from large mechanisms in production to smaller ones. So 3D printing, for example, is a powerful new phenomenon that is in its infancy. But it's not inconceivable that instead of having large industrial globalized systems, you know, like textiles, where in America you have the cotton production, which is still huge, and then we ship that cotton thousands of miles away to exploit effectively slave labor, and then we ship it to a distributor somewhere else, you know, up uh, northern Europe. And then it's shipped back all the way around the world to the United States to be sold at some department store. And that's lunacy, first of all, just from the sense of waste. So globalization is a terrible phenomenon, and it's being contradicted now with the efficiency of localization and the ability to do more and more and more with less and less. So you strategically start to localize. And you could do that in your region. You could do it in my region. It's a, it's a social focus to get away from importing and exporting anything and everything. It doesn't mean you don't have a global conscience of what you're doing. It means that you recognize it's too wasteful and it's, it's more independent. It gives more liberation to a society. It gives a better sense of community if you are localizing, as I think a lot of people can relate to that have you know, walked down the street and seen mom-and-pop stores and so on. It's a different phenomenon. Now, a fourth thing I want to touch upon is this digital feedback system. You know, Ludwig, Ludwig von Mises and... The 1930s is a famous economist who said, you can't understand people's preferences, you can't understand what's happening in the world in terms of supply and demand without use of markets and money. And that's been a long-standing defense of people that are so-called anti-socialist or whatever, and people that think, you know, any kind of, quote, central planning uh, is going to lead to inefficiencies. And back in the day, it absolutely did for those that were experimenting with this. But now we have the Internet, we have sensors, we have this incredible capacity to track pretty much every kind of transaction, the Internet of Things, which I'm sure you've you've heard of. So this whole idea that markets are needed for its information purpose is now debunked as well. And the final thing I'll mention is access as opposed to property. I think I confused uh, in my mind earlier, but I want to clarify this. Access, similar to open source, but access as opposed to property is about physical access Instead of buying one of everything, which is what is favorable to the market system, in economics, it's ideal in our economics, ideal for people to buy and consume one of everything repeatedly, uh, as opposed to sharing. So you look at the phenomenon of, say, the sharing car systems out there and their discussion of automation now, so you know, Uber and these other companies, they point out very accurately that you can have far less traffic, far less congestion and parking, far less pollution if you use access and sharing systems for cars, especially if they're automated, as opposed to the property system where everyone owns their own car. And that is another tremendous step. So those five things put together create an architecture synergistically that points to a collaborative and sustainable system that's focused on making sure that there's homeostasis with the planet. You notice I didn't talk about economic growth because economic growth is a hideous contrivance of market economics that shouldn't even exist as a concept. But that's, you know, unfortunately where we are with this really outdated economic system. 
So those five attributes put together create the so-called utopia that you mentioned. Put together, they set a new precondition that will create a much more amiable society, a much less conflicting society, a society much more prone to helping each other and itself as opposed to wanting to collect everything for itself, you know, and its individual self-interest and so on. So, I mean, there's more to be said about it, but I think those five attributes are, are critical, which is why I hone in on them to the way that I do in Chapter 5 of the book. So, sorry for the mouthful. <laughs> so, when we have all this in effect open sourcing everything there's no intellectual ownership of of anything per se who's curating all of this because we have this problem already with, with the internet in that it's actually just too much stuff isn't it there's too much internet hence the yeah. echo it's one of the reasons for the echo chamber so who is going to be curating all of this and then surely are you, those are the new elite what i'm sorry i didn't understand your question exactly who's going to be curating what exactly? Curating me as the end user, my pathway to knowledge, whether it's there is this, I can crowdsource this great new product, I can maybe donate a bit of X to this great new initiative, etc., etc. He was curating pathway between the innovator and the, I don't want to say the word consumer because that has bad connotations, but the, the citizen, shall we say. <laughs> I'm not sure if I... I know the answer to that question. Um, who's cur- I've never heard a phrase like that. Are you referring to the stuff that I work with in my organization? Well, I'm, I'm thinking about your economic model that we moved to. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, it's an activist focus. I, I, it's good. That's why the Zeitgeist movement has existed. That's you know why the focus of the book is what it is. You know, the curation is going to come from all of us, so to speak. In order to make things happen, there have to be new, new levels of engagement, and effectively, you need design people. You need people that are working in activism. We have to, we have to show these models. You know, it's, it's not it's not entirely infeasible to have everything I described put into a program that shows the feedback systems of what it means to have a true participatory economic system. You know what I mean? So, you know, the, the use of open source, the showing how you could connect information with the digital feedback I mentioned. You could, you could create a hypothetical localization system where, you know, it's effectively you, you send whatever you're creating to this print complex, which is the way I see things happening in the future. My issue is, and let me put it this way, is okay. that in part, I'd say in large part, the reason why we have these echo chambers, intellectual echo chambers, cultural echo chambers is because you know what there's actually too much bloody information out there what the internet has thrown at us is actually too much for any one person to actually properly absorb so it's actually it allows us to indulge ourselves massively and actually we're getting fat we're getting obese on uh the things that we just like as opposed to but back in the days of Leonardo da Vinci, if you were, a, you know, you could be a Renaissance man and actually have a handle on all bits of human knowledge. Sure. It's just impossible now. And there okay. are pros and cons with that. The pros are greater specializations. You have experts in different fields. The cons are, arguably, we have less sense of um, shared belonging to other people because they seem so different. I don't know. Let's say this is a, an obtuse uh, example to use. Because you know what, they're into heavy metal, and heavy metal's terrible. And I just, and I can, I can go through my whole life now, and I, and I can choose on YouTube or on Spotify or whatever, every genre of music to exclude heavy metal. Whereas right. in the pre-internet days, I would always bump into a little bit of heavy metal because somebody else was curating that radio station which I needed to listen to or or whatever. Right. 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 Yeah, I agree with you. The uh, the internet is has become a behemoth uh, thing that it goes against uh, the grain of what it used to be, no doubt, where you had one newspaper thrown at your door, and now it's just this overwhelming force uh, where you don't really know what to make of things in a lot of ways. I mean, I'm not sure what to say about the curation regarding the musical issue or you know how we know where to go. I, I cross-reference information if you talk about news. I don't take any particular news source seriously, but since there are search engines, and I'll use a few of them, I start to cross-reference things that are being published to see if I can find a more equal uh, sense of truth. 
as opposed to just you know what the Guardian or CNN might say regarding uh, uh, you know the the echo chamber. Um, it is it is there, and the more ideologically driven people are, the more they seem to reinforce that. You know, in the United States, the Trump administration, you've probably heard the phrase fake news. What's happened with this whole subculture is they are able to blinker out and just ignore anything that they disagree with now because they have this massive support group in their, you know, in their group echo chamber that just believes whatever, say, Trump says on his tweet. Mm. And that's, that's just depressing that we've gotten to that point. But therein lies the double-edged sword of, of the Internet. Yeah. My overwhelming point, which I was trying to strive for, is that those gatekeepers, those curators, in your scenario, then become the elite. Even if they can only move on information uh, three seconds before everybody else, or that they actually have a wider overview. Um, You know, they become the newspaper barons um, of old, really. They're just like the newspaper barons of old. I think if you were to look at the model more specifically, and if you look at Chapter 5 and really think about it, it it's because it's an access and, and open source, and, and it emphasizes participatory democracy, ultimately, on the economic level, there's little, I'd say there's much less room for elitism and power systems to emerge. I'm not denying that they, they could, but nothing like we see today, nothing you know, we have hegemonic corporations. You have every major sector across the world, due to transnationalism, uh, has maybe three to five corporations that dominate the entire sector. Where they talk about healthcare, where they talk about retail, of course, financial. Oh, and then the new one, social media. You know, that's terrifying. You have you have Twitter and Facebook, and a very small number of Silicon Valley CEOs that pretty much dominate. Uh, the social media architecture, and they have great censorship power, you know. So it, it's uh, it's nothing like it would be. So I'm I'm looking at improvement. You know, going back to the utopian idea, let's let's just think about how we can get things better, as opposed to you know trying to fix everything. I don't have that kind of idealism, but I you know I think I think things can be a whole lot better if people know what to look for, and that's why the educational imperative is so important. Most people are so frustrated today; they don't know. They're always looking within the political system for answers. You know, you, you guys just had an election. I'm sure there was lots of hope, you know, with people that are slightly outside the box, like Jeremy Corbyn, you know, he's sort of seen the mirror, the Sanders candidacy in the U.S. and so on. But that that whole construct is, is very limited in what it can actually accomplish, as we've seen by the fact that the dominant ideals or dominant progressive ideas still don't come to the surface. So a lot can be said on that. But I hope that makes sense in terms of just seeking improvement. I don't think the curation issue, so to speak, is going to be half as much of a problem as we see today, where you have straight, you know, territorial hegemonic dominance of media and so on, uh, and of course every other sector. It's just what we deal with today. I think most people are just used to it, honestly. You, know, you go into a grocery store in the United States, you see all this variety, it's, but it looks like variety, but it's not. There's only a handful of big agricultural and food production companies that literally produce virtually everything you see in in a grocery store. It's the illusion, that free market illusion, that there's lots of other players in play, and that's that's unfortunately not the case. So the homogenization will always be a problem uh, with this kind of system. But I think, you know, with open source and so on, there's no reason for brands anymore. There's no reason for corporations. The world I envision has no businesses. It's you, you develop a platform of interaction that's extremely high tech, extremely effective, extremely fast, and profoundly innovative if it's actually put forward. And I, I think again, these attributes will will happen. They already are starting to happen with automation, with a little bit with access, a little bit with open source, a little bit with localization, but we're not there yet. And of course the feedback systems, the Internet of Things, you know, these these things are there too. So the, they all have their potential just sitting there dormant and just wonder if humanity will be smart enough to snap out and see the synergy possible between all of them and then realize we can transform the entire world if we you know if we want to achieve better efficiency and sustainability peter joseph thank you for coming on to mid-atlantic and showing us where we can have a more equitable and sustainable planet the book is called the new human rights movement I've been speaking to the author, Peter Joseph. Uh, Peter, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on at the moment and where people can catch up with you online and through social media? 
Yeah, um, I'm also working on a new film series that is a, a live-action kind of gesture that surrounds all these same ideas, but more uh, artistically driven as opposed to documentary, even though it has the documentary attribute. It's called Into Reflections. Uh, people can find interreflectionsmovie.com. Um, I'm on, of course, you know, if, if anyone wants to know about my social media, you can just go to peterjoseph.info, and then, you know, all the stuff that I do, even though my site's quite outdated, but, you know, <laughs> Twitter and Facebook, all that stuff is there, too. I'm fairly active in social media. Uh, but right now, since the book has been done, I'm promoting it, of course, and uh, working on the film simultaneously, and hopefully it will be done by the end of the year. Fantastic. Peter Joseph again, thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic. Thank you. I really appreciate your time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.